Kia ora, I'm Mark Easterbrook and welcome to Voices of Aotearoa, the Going West podcast. In this episode, we go back in time to 1997 and a rare literary event at the Going West Festival, a reading from the first New Zealander to win the acclaimed Booker Prize, Kerry Hume. Festival founder Murray Gray had been gently nudging Kerry for several years to be a guest at the festival, and to his great delight, she had finally said yes. This recording is of her reading two excerpts from Bait, a story she described as being about fishing and death, and which was to be her second novel. Thanks to our supporters who make this podcast possible, to Robin Mason for helping bring this one out of the archives, and to the Kerry Hume estate for giving us permission to share this rare recording with you. Now, let's jump back to Going West 1997, where Murray Gray is about to introduce a very special guest. In an event which has had such a series of wonderfully stimulating and enjoyable events, to say there's a high point. But for me, there is a high point, and the high point is Kerry Hume reading from her new work. So I would like you to welcome Kerry Hume to the Going West Festival and ask her to come onto the stage and read to you from her new work in a session that is sponsored by one of the more unusual publishers in the world, Beaumont Isla Malt Whiskey. Kerry, thank you. Ehoma, my name. I don't know why there isn't any real reason. I should get nervous, but I do. Part of the reason is that I'm going to. Um, throw out some unpublished pieces um, from a work which has been far too long in the offing. And uh, it's without the sponsor's product, is a little nerve-wracking to do that. (laughs) I'd like to thank Beaumont Isla Malt very much indeed. Uh, I'd particularly like to thank at this juncture Murray and Naomi, Uh, for their wonderful organisation and indeed all the staff involved, um, whether uh, ringawera in the kitchen or people who organised in other ways. And uh, also the Waitakere um, City Council for its foresight and and initiative in in promoting such an event as the Going West uh, Literary Festival. There have been so many wonderful experiences as far as I'm concerned over these couple of days, uh, listening to people like uh, Amelia Battistich or, or Sia or Roma or Jackie or Alan or Albert or John or Russell, it gets very iniquitous, you can't mention everybody and I'd love to because I have learned and gained something from everybody who has um, presented material to us as readers uh, over the last two days. Quite some time ago, I came across a quotation from a writer called Don Jacobson, who was talking about a forthcoming novel which, like mine, had been somewhat delayed. And I like to use this quote, or at least I cut it out for future use, because it sums up one of the reasons for writerly um, lassitude um, and delays. He wrote, It is always difficult to admit to oneself, let alone convey to others, 
The peculiar combination of indolence and energy, chance and obsession, which go into the making of any new piece of fiction. To say that inattention and vacancy of mind are as important to it as concentration and purposefulness sounds like a mere piece of mystification, but I fear it is the truth, and it surely is. I have invented a place called Takiri. Um, Takiri doesn't even sound like Okurito, and indeed there is no resemblance, except there is a lagoon in Takiri, and there is a small settlement adjoining it. Time in Takiri is somewhat different. Takiri time is when things actually happen, as opposed to when people want them to happen or expect them to happen or plan on them happening. Everybody in Takari and our very varied crew, some of whom I'll introduce to in a second segment of reading, um, is either telling lies or hiding secrets. The lagoon itself, the sea environs and the bush are probably as much part of the story as the dozen or so characters who live on and around them. This is how bait begins. How far does the lagoon go? That's an easy question to ask, but a hard one to answer. On maps, it looks like an awry W. The northern upright, as it were, stretching twice as far as the other arms, and the southern downward prong blurring into the Tasman Sea. The central point is haloed by a large inland swamp. On maps, the lagoon covers 13 square miles and appears to be open water, except for an island sketched in the south arm. However, if you fly over it, the strokes and points are not distinct. They look frayed, obscured by rimu and kahikatea, raupo and flax, and they're not coherent bodies of water, but tangles of intertwining interwoven channels with, it is admitted, sometimes clear middle streams. The water changes colour, milky jade by the lagoon entrance, beer bottle brown and sepia in the channels. But there are streaks in the tree patterns that look like the momentary shine of water, and maybe are, and turbid areas that might actually be mud banks. Just flying over the place will not give you a true picture. You can negotiate a great deal of the lagoon by dinghy and kayak. You can wander around the margins and the reed beds or push and slosh your way through the flax swamps. You can get to know this water world quite well, parts of it, but still not know where you are. The trouble is not just the expanse of changeable water, the maze of channels, the mud banks that are there one tide and gone the next, the encroaching swamps. The trouble is names. On maps, you will find Dead Man's, The Dirty Dog, Skillet and Say Minay. You'll find Two Mile, Three Mile and Five Mile, The Frenchman's, The Aussie and Chinaman Point. Anglers will talk of cemetery and niggies, Egg Creek, Trick Creek and the Sedge, and know whereof they speak, although most maps don't record those names. To fog matters further, there are streams named on maps, like Deep Creek and Curvy Stream, which the locals call other names bottomless and figure of eight. There are three brown creeks, four sandfly streams and two dark waters. 
It may say something about the attitude of the locals, that there are no less than seven places with dis disappointment in their designations. It is a form of gold rush territory, though. Many places have no names. There is one small place, Te Kanohi or Tanefa, which has its name, but no one can find the lake. It seems to be a confusing place, the lagoon, but the locals get round it all right and they know, more or less, where they are talking about. Good hatch over at Browns last night. North Browns? Nah, swamp. Or, saw a lot of cowfish spawning in the sandfly yesterday, hard by Frenchman's. Yeah? Charlie said there was a big shoal near the top end of Toys Island a couple of days back. Might be a go of this season. Cross fingers and hope the tides are right. Cowfish is the local name for inaka, one of the many kinds of whitebait. Toys Island doesn't appear anywhere on any map. Despite the maps, there are three islands in the lagoon. The one that is officially here is the Senac Reserve, covered in mahoi and second growth bush. They culled the cattle and goats off it years ago and it now supports a sizeable population of fernbird and weka, of pukeko and heron and ducks. There are at least four very territorial Kiwis in residence and rumours of something much, much more rare. Because shooting is forbidden all year round, the birds are as unwary and approachable as their ancestors of 200 years back. That island is mapped and signposted and well known and patrolled at irregular and unlikely hours by wildlife officers. It is called either Te Kohaka or Te Kauriki, the nest of the little and probably extinct bittern, or Hawkins Island, depending on who you are speaking to, on who is naming it. Adjoining Te Kohaka is Toys Island. Indeed, at extreme low spring water, a shoal connects the two. Maybe this part of the lagoon was surveyed at such a time, hence the solitary island on maps. They have been considered separate entities for many hundred years. Wars have been fought over that fact, small wars, small bitter wars. The last one isn't settled, even yet. The third island changes shape according to how much tide there is. It is a dance of growing land with incoming and retreating water. The wee wee on its surface are only inches above the top of a spring tide. But lately some bold flax has taken root and the eelgrass flats are spreading month by month. There is a population of sprightly crabs and a damp pukeko on a damp nest. Every crab casting above the high watermark, every feather that drifts onto the mud, each piece of shell and composting shaft of reed adds infinitesimally but definitely to the land's bulk. This is an island on the make. The first European to arrive in Takari for so the lagoon and its shore settlement are named, noted that, though there are many fata, such are derelict. We saw no people nor any sign of habitation than of food storehouses. My companion picked a handsome axe from the south beach made from green stone, native talc, but I found not so much as a fish hook, and they are in great numbers at other coastal places. That was written in 1843, 20 years before gold was discovered in Takiri. There had been people living here, never many, and often staying only for the fishing season before moving north into winter villages. There had been people here for 600 years. The lagoon was proverbial as a food basket, however. Kitea te ketika, or Takiri ra and its reputation was a lure for stronger, more war-hungry people. 
They came, they conquered, and in their turn were shifted on by others stronger still. Some of those who first settled remained, however, for the bush round Takere is thick and the lagoon is much amazed then as it is now. They kept their fires alight, the first settlers, and while they dwindled as a people, they never ceded the land. There is one left, Toi, on her island, the last of Katitio. There are times when the mists are strong and every bird call echoes strangely. If you become stranded in those parts beyond the reach of tide, there's little to help you find out where you are. The water movement is imperceptible. Trees are huge and shadowy and moss-grown all round. If it is day, the sunlight will be too diffused to give direction, and if night, the moon will not be seen. The bird calls become too loud, or so far away as to sound like cries for help. Then they begin not to sound like birds at all. Was that really a snicker from an unseen treetop? There are rustles in the flax, something heavy, too heavy for a bird, and breathing that whistles. If you're up the lagoon at such a time, you give credence to some of the stories that are told, to some of the rumours that go round. In late summer, along the reedy margins, the fish gather. Wherever weed or grass or flax is touched by the height of February's spring tides, there in the evening the fish will be. There's a sound like rain pattering into the water. There may be gulls or terns harassing the shoals. You can hear the slip of fish avoiding bills, see the flurries, see too the milt spreading white as milk in the tide. If you catch an inaka at this time, and it's not a hard thing to do, just dip your hand down and snatch, you see a small fish, 10 to 12 centimetres in length and on average, although a big female will reach eight inches and an old age of three. The eyes are beautiful, large and silver with pure black pupils. The belly is silver with a streak of bluish green, a highlight between belly and the fine gold lateral line. The upper side of the fish varies a great deal. You may have caught one that is brownish yellow, or amber, or even cream. There will be olive dots and splotches and irregular but pleasing patterns through the topside colour. The fins are colourless except for tiny dark spots. It is a beguiling little creature. There are many million more like it, still. It will die very quickly in your hand. Watch the silvery gill covers expand, gasp, close forever. Inaka, bait. In truth, inaka isn't bait. White bait are the young of galaxids, and inaka are only one species among many galaxidae. In Takari Lagoon alone, you'll find the short-jawed, the banded, and the giant kokopu, and the kuaro, as well as the inaka. Not that white baiters care about these distinctions. Bait is bait is bait unless it's dandelion spawn or golden bait or elephant ears, of course. And there aren't any bait about as yet. The inaka are just starting the cycle off. The females discharge the eggs from their swollen bellies and the males jet melt sufficient not only to fertilise the eggs but to stain the surrounding water, cowfish, milkfish. And then the spent adults drift from the banks and edges of the estuary and mainly die. 
Millions of tiny translucent ochre-tinged eggs adhere to the vegetation, out of water now, but still hidden, waiting for the top of the next spring tide. It may arrive in a fortnight. It may be six weeks before the eggs are sufficiently wetted again. The waves come crashing over the lagoon bar and stream up the south arm, diminishing to rollers, to wavelets, to ripples as the land drags them down, but still washing onwards to fill all Takari, the water rising and rising, reaching for the bank tops, fingering the roots of reed and flax, lapping up the overhangs where some egg masses are, drowning all the mud banks and the wee-wee that have eggs attached to them, ascending inexorably, though silently now, and until at last the mark of extreme high spring tide is reached, everywhere. And if the eggs haven't been eaten in the meantime, or flood-rotted or rained upon too hard and prematurely hatched, they will respond to that enlivening touch, Within ten minutes, slivers of life are awash in the retreating tide. They flow away, out over the bar, into the secret-bearing deeps. How far does the lagoon go? It slips into the Tasman Sea, and the Tasman blends with the Pacific and Indian Oceans, and all the waters of the world become one, eventually. So, you can say the lagoon goes as far as the boundaries of this world. You'll gather that bait is partly about fishing. It's also about secrets and lies and what happens when the last, you're the last of your people. Um, it's about death. It's quite a lot of death one way or the other in, in bait, though very, very little violence. And it's also um, about eating. And indeed, in this particular segment, you get um, a recipe from a professional fish and chip cook. At one stage of my life, I spent 18 months cooking fish and chips, and I know the job quite well. Bait consists initially of 12 chapters with 12 afternotes or semi-explanations that are very much part of the story. There is then something called the inner view, which tells you really what happened in the end. It's stuck there in the middle just for fun. And following the interview, there is what I've labelled mentally the swamp, though my family is prone to call it the bog, for all kinds of reasons. Um, in the bog, or the swamp, you have um, all the people you've been introduced to revealing themselves one way or the other, or revealing their secrets. There are Two characters who basically sparked off another novel when I invented them. I had intended them to be quite peripheral, um, um, scenic extras, as it were. One of them is a person called Hollis Skykin Ross, and you'll gather from that very Scots name um, that she's actually six foot seven and probably of Tongan um, origin. Um, she is weighs considerably over 300 pounds, and she's not the sort of person you sort of argy-bargy with or trade words or indeed really do anything except scrape nervously past. Um, she is actually a very kindly, very intelligent and um, very interesting person. She's not at all what she seems, incidentally. She has um, a small child who is known as the Nicola for reasons that neither Hollis nor the Nick actually reveal to anybody, uh, except at the end. And he is traditionally Polynesian, except for the fact that he's got red hair. 
there's a wonderful set of red-haired people throughout Polynesia, actually, and it's not for nothing that some of our fairy people, Patuparihe or Tirihu, and our so-called wild people, Maeroero, are described as red-headed or fair-headed. Hollis runs a fish and chip cock, uh, fish and chip cook shop in Takari called the Cook Shop at the End of the World, um, and people come from all kinds of strange places because she's an exceedingly good cook to taste her wares. The person who is described as I or me or my um, in this particular e extract is a person called Jay Halfpenny. While Hollis is very big, Jay is very small. She stands four foot nine and quarter inches in her shoes, and she's very keen on that additional quarter of an inch. She's actually an advertising director, and it is she who comes on to most of the secrets that are in Takari. She has become Hollis's very good friend. However, at the moment, Hollis is in a tiny spot of bother. He's a stringy man with a raw-looking nose and the self-important bearing and smirk of minor officialdom. He flashes a plastic card at me. It has a scrawl of signature, a dock logo, and his smirk and Polaroid. Fair fair, Mrs Kinross, we got a complaint. I am not Mrs Kinross, I am Mrs Halfpenny. Er, uh, are you? Hollis nods. Well, we got a complaint about you keeping illegals in your freezers. Oh, Hollis blinks. Illegals? Yeah, illegally caught fish or native birds of any kind. The smirk is larger. Her face is quite still. You are welcome to look anywhere. We'll start with this one then, and he flings the lid of the freezer back so it bangs against the wall. It's brimful with boxes of Nelson scallops. Get the tops off them, eh, and then stack them on the floor. They won't harm while we look. He shoves his ID back into an inner pocket and his hands into the pouch front of his jacket. She patiently takes out each card and takes off each lid and shows the contents to the smirk, who stands there nodding, exuding an uncomely eagerness. The boxes have a little ice fur on them. The scallops inside are in two layers, ten flat packs per layer. There are nothing but scallops in the boxes and nothing but boxes of scallops in the freezer. The next side was up to me, staring at the intruder. <clears throat> now that one, says the bloke brusquely, after Hollis has restacked re the scallop boxes. That one is the larger chest freezer, a good four metres long. Hollis nods, her face impassive. She walks across and opens the lid gently and begins to unload. The smirk follows and halts behind her, his arms akimbo. He spoils his authority stance by licking his lips. Must be in there. No, she's only got the two, but it's birds, pigeons, probably always is with these Maori types. They got two Ataras last time. Mind you, they were meant for a really fancy restaurant. Come on, faster, faster. The nick is a handful of my skirt, and his gaze is fixed on the freezer now, not on the man. Hollis takes out a newspaper bundle, unwraps it to show a dozen whole kinna. I can see the smirk's disappointment. She takes out transparent bags labelled Free flow turbot, five kilogram when packed, and we can see the fillets clearly. There's slabs of piorki and freezer wrap, 101 pound packs of white bait, and 14 crayfish bodies, all huge. And that's the bottom of that side of the freezer.
They can go back then, says the bloke, after tapping the bottom and the dividing wall. There are dozens of bags of frozen potato chips. Again, the bags are transparent, and what's inside is obviously quite legal. The bloke prods a few, but he's lost his smirk, and I can feel his suspicious anger growing. Hollis brings out the last four bags. Now, I can't be sure when the neck loosened his grip on my skirt. I can't recall him creeping close to the bloke, but he was suddenly right there inventing a high, strange ululation. The bloke slammed round, not to give him his due, not realising how close the child was, and sent him cannoning into the side of the freezer. And there was Nick, sat instantly down, his eyes gone wide open and dark, and staring in a stunned fashion at the new angle in his arm. And Hollis hissed. The hissing lost sibilance and gained ugly sound, and her eyes bulged. Her heavy shoulders hunched, and she started to spread her arms. Er, says the bloke, and he turns hurriedly to me. He looks frightened. I'd look frightened too. Shit, it's an accident, isn't it? Shit, I didn't see. I'm sorry, I didn't see. And because I really don't want to see his face torn off or him fragmented or whatever it is that Hollis will do, I say, I'm sure you wouldn't hurt a child deliberately. Hollis, can I ring for a doctor or something? And the ugly noise stops. And she tilts her massive head towards me. Yes, Get that out of here, she says, and kneels beside the Nicola. I think it would be a good time for you to leave, I say politely to the smirkless official. He is muddy pale. You've seen everything there is to see, and he nods, yes, 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 almost frantically. It was an accident, really, following me to the shop door. I hold it open for him. Please tell Mrs Kinross it was probably a nut complaint. We get them all the time, but we've got to follow up. That's our job. He bracelets one wrist and stares nervously back at the freezer room. I'm sorry about the kid. I didn't mean to. I Yes, yes, it was an accident, I say briskly, ushering him out. He scuttles into his bright car and plants boot away in a big hurry. As well, for I had noticed, a director's noticing, a matter of set layout, if you like, something he would have noticed quite soon. We shift to another of the Takari residents. Um, pair of young, romantically involved people called Rosie and Charlie, um, who are doing a necessary job. He picks up another fowl, the future victims buck-bucking placidly by his ankles. Do you think they go, book, book, or book, book, says Rosie suddenly. The foul neck in his fingers goes yick, one swift snatch longer than its vertebrae's best stretch. Geez, Rose, they go dead at the moment. Rose lifts her eyebrows at him. She picks up a chook and calms it into nestling into the crook of her arm. She holds the grey scaly legs firmly. Bye-bye, she says, and the amber eyes blink. Her arm tightens at the same instant. She seizes the neck and pulls. There isn't any sound. But is it a B or is it P, do you think? Here, Curry, we've got five more to do, and I suspect they've all got their little ways of saying goodbye. I can't hear it that close. It could be clack, clack, clack for all I know. Oh, no, says Rosie, definitely. They never go cluck. I've listened. Charlie has ex executed another bird. Two more each. They do them. 
book, book, I think she says doubtfully, looking at the pile of bodies and the little black sand fleas trickling away from them. Oh, look, here comes Jay. The little woman is walking fast. She puffs slightly when she stops at the fence and winces at the dead fowls. Oh, am I interrupting? Nope, they say, and she sighs. Good. She angles herself so she can look at them both and not see the bodies. There's been an accident, she says, and explains about Nick. And Hollis wonders if either of you would mind giving me a hand to cook tonight. Because I said I would, and um, I can't really. I could do the serving and wrapping, though. We both will, says Rosie promptly. Mum can have an early night. Charlie can do the fishing things, and I'll look after the chips. You're better cook than me, love. And Charlie grins and doesn't deny it. That is a relief. I sort of offered on the spur of the moment, but I don't know a thing about commercial fish and chip making. Nor do we, says Charlie, grinning, but we'll learn. I hurry back to the Kinrosses. It's nearly four already. In the living room, Hollis is on the mattress on the floor, Nick in her lap and sound asleep. She rocks very slowly and hums in that soft yet resonant bass. She looks up as I tiptoe in and smiles and keeps on humming. She had already begun it when I got back to the freezer anteroom after seeing the smirk off. It is not a loud sound, but it reverberates. I can feel it throb in my chest. She sings words with it, and I take a minute to realise she is actually talking both to her child and to me. Easy, 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 she sings to the Nick learned. Hold the arm like this, Jay, opening her fingers from round his wrists. Her hand is under his broken forearm. I do, gingerly, using both hands. He's shivering a little, still shocked, but I haven't heard him make a sound. I chatter to cover my unease, to try and to divert him, and to fill in the odd silence now that Hollis has vanished into their living room. Nick's arm is very war warm, despite his shivers. Goodness, just as well you don't need your swanny at this time of the year. It would make it that much more difficult, wouldn't it? I say inanely. All my chatter sounds inane to me. Nick's eyes are closed, and I hope he isn't trying to understand any of my nonsense. I'm profoundly relieved when I hear the humming return. And the doctor will be here soon, I say brightly. Oh dear, more inanity. There is an air ambulance service. I do not have insurance. I can set the arm. She doesn't open her mouth, but the words are clear. Like ventriloquism, I think, distractedly. And watch, repelled and fascinating, as fascinated as with padding, crepe bandages and thin slats of a wood-like bamboo, she does just that, set an arm. I know she is neat-fingered, but this gentle deafness is almost uncanny. My shaky support soon becomes redundant. The necklace stops shivering and opens his eyes. They've come grey again and are lit with his inward smile. He says, very quietly, barely heard over the sonorous pulse of his mother's singing, I was making patterns, Jay, that's why I couldn't answer you. And then he smiles openly. Hollis has made a sling out of his turquoise silk pariu. His arm is both supported and held close to his body by it. She sits on the floor and cuddles him onto her lap with one fat hand, wipes the faint sheen of sweat from his face with the other. Okay, she asks, and grins as he settles down and yawns. You're very stoical, Nick, I say. His eyes are closing, his breathing is even. Hollis says softly, the humming momentarily ceased. When he wants to be, you could hear him from one end of the settlement to the other when he stood on the wasp. She laughs, soft as her voice, and then sighs, soft as the laugh. It would be best to keep him like this a little while longer, but I must open at five. Would you hold him, please, Jan? I'd love to, but couldn't I look after the shop? I'm good with money, change, and maybe Charlie or Rose would give me a hand. I don't add, with the real work, the cooking, 
but the glint in Hollis's eyes shows that she hasn't missed what I'm not saying. She resumes her humming and nods once. And so it's all organised except for knowing actually what to do. I whisper now, Hollis, can you tell me how I should go about it, about the cooking vats and getting the cooking vats going and things? The resonance fades. Curiously, I immediately feel less at ease. Hollis looks at her son, but he doesn't stir. I will show you. There's another matter to be dealt with first. She is speaking normally. Ask your questions, Jay. Oh, for all I know, my questions are waving tensely fluorescent pink arms at her and shouting, pick me, pick me. I'm not good at disguising aroused curiosity. Well, I say diffidently, though I'm fairly sure she won't be angered again. I think there may be something in your freezers after all. Her smile is long and lean-lipped. I mean, I'm almost certain the big one has two different sized compartments. Maybe a false bottom and the right-hand one. Her nod is acknowledgement. And there's something in there that it wouldn't have been um, good for that bloke to find. Nod. And the Nick knows what is in there. Yes. His breathing is so relaxed, so peaceful. And so what happened wasn't quite an accident. The lean smile is long gone. There's no sign that she ever smiles. I had a distraction ready. I hadn't planned that he would move first. It must be quite an interesting something in the freezer. Yes, says Hollis, looking straight at me, her black eyes without glints, pools of darkest night. It is. And when this evening is over and Howie and Rosemary have returned home, I will show him to you. For now, however, I'll show you how the vats operate. And she stands with her inimitable, seemingly weightless grace, the nickler held easily and still sleeping against her breast by one arm, and moves into the shop. For, have you noticed, she doesn't have an accent, says Francis. Definitely a foreigner, says Toy, no Kiwi speaks that correctly or so formally. Hollis doesn't make mistakes with pronouns. She doesn't use pigeon. She doesn't say him and mean it. I shiver. I rather hope Charlie and Rosie won't go home tonight. I rather hope Hollis will forget. I rather wish I didn't have such outrageously pink questions leaping up and down on me. Or at least that I had enough sense to keep my mouth tightly shut. But it's all a bit late now. The vats, three of them, look intimidating. Hollis slides the covers back. They're filled with clear oil, no scraps floating, no obvious smell. It's peanut oil, says Hollis. It holds the heat well and lets the food taste mainly of itself. Keep the end vat for the scallops and the other ones for fish and chips. She slides the bait sign off the board. You won't have to bother with that. The vats are gas-heated and the gas is electronically ignited. There's a humph and blue flames soar a second and steady. There's a thermostat so they'll stay on at the right temperature, says Hollis. She shows me the range of baskets, the fish tongs, the chip scoops. We'll use the frozen chips, you know where they are. She grins. Heh <laughs> I think. She says, I prepared the fish earlier. You'll find it in the refrigerator. Five dozen pieces to a container. There are about 20 dozen altogether and that should be enough. There's a lot of baiters around, I say doubtfully. I counted the white baiters today. I have an idea as to how much they caught. You shouldn't be too busy. Oh. 
The batter is easy. Eggs are in the cool cupboard. That is above the left-hand freezer. Again, the unsettling grin. Bring me a dozen and I'll mix the first bowl. I will mix the first bowl. Here's the secret inside story of making perfect batter for fish and chips. If you're Hollis, you take two eggs in your hand and crack them neatly, smartly, so the contents slip into the very large mixing bowl while you chuck the shells into the rubbish bin under the counter. Crack, chuck, crack, chuck, crack, chuck, cradling your sleeping son the while. Flour is in that cupboard, Jay. There's a scoop with it that looks like it'll hold a couple of kilos. And if you're Hollis, you ladle the flour in and partially blend it and the eggs with a giant fork. The beer is in the other one. If you're Hollis, you efficiently decap the bottle with the opener sighted in the edge of the counter and pour in the half litre of beer, rescuing the fork before it slides beneath the eggs and flour and mix it all quickly and smoothly so there are no lumps, just the first slow bubbles beginning to bead the creamy surface. If you're Hollis, it takes just three minutes, egg break to resting batter. I foresee all kinds of trouble for me. The next stirs and whimpers. I appreciate the help, she says, and begins her humming again. I appreciate it very much. I will see you later, as she vanishes into the anteroom door. The Malaysian octopus waves a tentacle as she goes. That little blue octopus plays a very big part in the story. You'd be more help, I groan. I wish I'd been born at least eight-limbed, if not big. And being mute might have been a good idea too. One of the problems with reading part of a work that hasn't been published is that you don't want to give away the goodies. Um, so you choose nice bland bits, none of the pyrotechnics, none of the special effects as it were. And I certainly am not going to tell you what is in Hollis's freezer, but <laughs> it is very interesting. Um, in conclusion, can I say thank you very much fellow readers, fellow writers, all of us who are both. For, have, for being a most companionable and responsive and wonderful group of people. I've thoroughly enjoyed the two days I've spent here. And uh, I look forward now to a swift nip money. Kia ora tata. I have no doubt that the international sales of Bobo or Isla Singamot whiskey will skyrocket after today. Thank you, Kerry. I planned this about six years ago. It's taken a while to get it, eh? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Voices of Aotearoa, a podcast of archival recordings from the Going West Literary Festival. This series has been produced by James Littlewood and edited and presented by me, Mark Easterbrook, following on from the work of our founding podcast editor, Robin Mason. Marshall Smith makes us sound amazing, Marigold Janicic is our graphic designer, and Melissa Lang manages the technical side of our online platforms. You can explore our ever-growing library of audio and video online at goingwestfest.co.nz. A huge thanks to our key supporters and funders, Creative New Zealand, the Waitakere Rangers Local Board, AUT, Auckland Libraries and the Trusts here in West Auckland.